Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I have the privilege of um, bringing the Word of God and proclamation to you, and uh, great privilege it is. And we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 18 through 25. Verse 18 through 25. I'll go ahead and, and read it, and we'll, we'll pray. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not has God not has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you this morning. We ask and pray, Lord, uh, that you would reveal Christ to us this morning. I ask that you would meet us here, that your Holy Spirit would meet with us here this morning. I ask and pray, Lord, that you would, that your word would be proclaimed faithfully and purely, boldly, O Lord that Christ would be exalted and that you would be glorified. I pray that your people would be edified, equipped for the building and furthering of your kingdom. And I pray that if anyone here, Lord, does not know you, that you would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh that you would lead them, O God, to repentance to you. Father, I I thank you, O God, for this undeserved privilege to present your word this morning. I ask that you would keep pride from me as the flesh longs to steal your glory. Humble us all in this moment, meet with us here, and proclaim your word and nothing more. We ask this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. The cross is a symbol we have grown very accustomed to. It uh, adorns our churches, our, our homes, our clothing, purses, wallets, even jeans. Not my jeans. The symbol 
has been so recognized as a universal sign of, of love, hope, comfort, and spirituality. It is even displayed in, in secular culture, even though that is changing. This, however, was not always the case. And I realize that we have just went over uh, the crucifixion of crisis a few weeks ago, so I apologize if this is uh, somewhat redundant, but a little backdrop. Because we have come so accustomed, we have lost the feel of the context of passages such as the one that we're in today. This means of torture and death can be traced back all the way to 519 BC in the, to the Persian Empire. From there, it was adopted by uh, Greeks. And from there, as we all know, the Romans, who although did not invent crucifixion, as historians say, perfected it. <clears throat> the, uh, the ancients considered death by crucifixion to be not just any type of execution, but the most obscene, disgraceful, horrific means of execution known to man. The other objective of crucifixion, besides horrific pain and death, was to expose the victim to the utmost indignity and shameful disgrace. It was reserved for vile criminals, military enemies, rebellious foreigners, and slaves, who were viewed as the lowest form of humans. In fact, slaves were so commonly crucified, it became known as the slave's punishment. So disgraceful and crude was the crucifixion that one did not dare bring it up in, in polite or civil conversation or company. It was a symbol of wrath, death, and mercilessness to all of Rome's enemies. There's very little that we can parallel it to today, but during World War II, another symbol blazed across television screens and newspapers. It was a symbol used by Nazi Germany in the pursuit of conquest. It is a symbol today that we would equate with some of the same emotions I described earlier. The swastika is a symbol that we today view with great contempt. It is a symbol that represents hatred, wrath, cruelty, and pure evil. It is a symbol that we don't casually bring up or talk about, nor any of us would have as decor. Just looking at the symbol of this circle with zigzag crisscross lines brings great discomfort. It is a symbol of great offense. I, uh, when I was thinking about doing this, I was, I, the thought came to my mind that oh, maybe I would show a picture of it just to you know, get the feel um, or maybe have it on the screen. Just, but even the thought of it was this, I couldn't bear myself to even do that. And I said also, with my luck, a young family would be walking in a little late as we had the <laughs> swastika on the screens and like, yeah, I think we're in the wrong church. <laughs> so we all know what the symbol looks like. And, and no doubt, if I were to have done that, it would make us just kind of cringe and, and feel uncomfortable. But imagine with me today, now please, there's a point I'm going to get to, so hold the stones, bear with me. <laughs> but imagine with me if I were to 
present that symbol to you and say, it is in this symbol that we can find hope. It is in this symbol that the goodness of God is represented. Uh, no doubt you would all, would all be greatly offended and retort to me the atrocities done in the name of that symbol. How could the goodness of God be connected with such a horrific symbol? To suggest such a thing is utter madness. Yet this is the setting that I would like for us to consider as we begin to examine our text this morning. Verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. In the Palatine Museum located in Rome is a piece of plaster discovered and taken in 1856 from a Roman structure around 200 A.D. And this piece of plaster is known as, and I'm going to butcher the name, it's Greek, uh, Aleximenos, or Aleximenos, Graffito. And if you look hard enough at this etched piece of plaster, you will see a man knelt down in prayer and praying to a crucified man or crucified person with the head of a donkey. And the inscription below on this piece of plaster says, Alexemenos worships his God. The piece of graffiti gives us an idea as to the attitude that the unbelieving world had toward the gospel. Marcus Cornelius Fronto, a Roman grammarian rhetorician during the middle of the second century, said of Christians, quote, the religion of the Christians is foolish inasmuch as they worship a crucified man and even the instrument itself of his punishment, end quote. At the beginning of this letter, Paul exhorts the uh, Corinthian believers because, um, because of division. It was common in this time for, for people to attach themselves to philosophical or strong teachers of the day, the idea was that they, would, they wanted to appear more pious than others, and they would attach themselves to those that they deemed to speak the greatest wisdom, even if that wisdom was true or not. Those like the Corinthians in this time cared more for show and presentation rather than for content and truth. The Corinthians, being new believers, brought this type of thinking into their faith, and, and some claimed that they followed Paul, some claimed that they followed Peter. The real pious ones claimed that they followed Jesus. Paul corrects his thinking by reminding them all that they preached the same gospel and not one of the apostles died for them. Paul then reminds them that he did not come preaching a message like those rhetorics and, and showmen of the day. That he preached the message of the cross, not in worldly eloquence or wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And begin here in verse 18 by telling them that the message of the cross is, is the exact opposite of that. The cross is not appealing to the world. They are looking for man-centered wisdom that is showy and boastful. Paul here says that the message of the cross is considered to be foolishness in human terms, and rightfully so. While the orders and rhetoricians of this time would proclaim great words of wisdom that taught people the answers to life, 
what to believe and how to live, Paul is resolved to proclaim nothing but the cross. He is essentially saying that there is nothing more to build upon. There is nothing more to address, to dress up the cross, nothing to make it more appealing. The message of the cross, the gospel, is the starting point, middle, and finish line for the believers. There's no greater wisdom to move past. The word of the cross or the message of the cross is and will always be foolish to an unbelieving world. But Paul juxtaposes that in the very next part of this verse when he says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul then shows the antithesis of those who deem the cross as foolish. One might think that Paul would here say that the message of the cross is the wisdom of God, which he does say later in verse 24. But he doesn't here. He says that not only is it not foolishness, but that it is the power of God displayed to those who are being saved. This word here is very intentional by Paul. He is not saying that it is God's powerful wisdom, nor is he saying is it just another set of powerful religious philosophical beliefs, nor is it good news about God's power, but the gospel message of the cross is God's power in the lives of those who believe. When I was considering the message, the title for this sermon, um, which I don't know why, it's always a, I hate coming up with titles for my sermons. I stress about it. It's almost as daunting as doing, writing the this, this sermon itself. But I, I thought about going with the foolishness of the cross or, or the power of the foolish cross or something like that. Um, but I landed on the power of God. Because I thought how interesting it is. What would we think if, say, we didn't have the sermon text below and we were to walk in this morning and saw that the sermon title was The Power of God? Now, I hold you all to a higher standard because I know the preaching that you're on every Sunday. But if you were to visit a mainstream big church and you saw that the message of that sermon was the power of God, what might you think you'd hear? Holy Spirit, yeah. The power of God uh, to calm the storms in your life. The power of God to slay the giants of doubt that stand in your way. The power of God to part the red seas of difficulties. The power of God to perform miracles. The power of God over addiction, over a failing marriage, over heartaches. Now, don't get me wrong. God's power is displayed in doing things such as this. But how many of us, or how many people, when seeing that title, would think this must be a message of the cross? The sad fact is that the world, like those in Corinth, see power by merely physical, 
humanistic means. The Jews were looking for a Messiah to be uh, a military conqueror, not a sacrificial lamb. The Greek gods were likewise made in, in man's ideological understanding of, of what power was and how it should be displayed. Their strength lay, lay in merely physical form, and their power was only over the physical world or your physical situation. And you have seen the way in which they, were, they are depicted. Their strength and power rested completely in the physical, and they were depicted as such. It has been rightly said that in the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, man has been trying to return the favor. Now, don't get me wrong, God does hold and, and wield great power that we can be in awe of. Our God is a mighty God who brought about the creation of the universe by merely speaking it into existence. But this is a great power, this great power, this great sovereignty that God wields and holds creates such a great backdrop that makes the cross the all, all the more awe-inspiring. Our Lord himself did great many miracles, works of power during his ministry, but none were in comparison to the work that was done on the cross. What other work caused our Lord to plead with the Father to take it away, if at all possible? What other work makes spiritual dead sinners alive? What other work can make rebellious sinners pure in the sight of a holy God? What other work takes the full wrath of the Father? This is the only work that can accomplish the otherwise impossible task of this. It is the greatest and most powerful work done in all of human history. And it is a sad fact that many desire to experience the power of God in their lives. Churches uh, will hold, will hold uh, services supposedly displaying the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, slaying people in the spirit and, and claiming that this, this is the power of God and, and people want to come and experience the, this power of God in terms of, of healing, answered prayers, signs and wonders, wonders or prosperity. But if you have come to a saving knowledge of Christ, you have already experienced God's greatest act of power in your life. I would like to also take note of the options that Paul provides for us here in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Notice that there is no gray area here. There are, the, there are not those that do not think of the cross as foolishness, but yet it is not the power of God to save it is not depicted of one way of experiencing God's saving power amongst many others. It is not one of many options of God's power to save. If that were the case, then the cross would absolutely be foolishness. If, that, if the cross were, were many routes of God's power to save, then why did the Father not answer our Lord's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? The imagery of the cross that that scripture paints for us is, is beautiful. We just went over it just a couple weeks ago. 
You have Christ crucified on a cross between two sinners, two thieves, one believing, the other not. One putting his, asking for Christ's mercy, believing in the power of, of Christ to save, the other one thinking him as foolish for being on a cross. There is no gray area here. The message of the cross, the gospel, is either one of these two things to you. Paul makes no other distinction. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Paul then goes on to cite in verse 19, Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul here shows the Corinthians that this was not an improvised plan of God. It is not as if the crucifixion was something that happened unexpectedly. And he is trying to, and him and the apostles are trying to flip it into something good. Paul is not like some of these false prophets of, of the day that will claim to know exactly when Jesus is coming back. And then when it doesn't happen on the day, they say, they say well, it happened in a different sense. We didn't, it didn't come, he didn't come in the way we expected. He came in another way. Paul is saying that this was always God's plan. By quoting Isaiah 29, 14, Paul declares the foolishness of the cross as God doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Even the world's rejection of the cross as foolish was God doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Paul then shows the the futile teachings and end results of, of those of his contemporaries. Verses 20 and 21. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The one who is wise that Paul is addressing here are, are the uh, publicly pronounced uh, the speakers of, of philosophy in this time. Some of those views would include Epicureanism. And Epicureanism was, a wide, was very widespread during this time, and it taught that we could achieve true happiness by a life of quietness, peace, and self-control, similar to kind of Buddhism. It taught that there was no life after death, and people must break away from the fear of their gods to live happy and peaceful lives. So much for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Stoicism was another philosophical worldview that did teach in a higher power, which they would define as God, fate, or providence, or reason. And according to, to Stoics, humanity finds fulfillment by striving to live in harmony with this reason. This is accomplished through self-control, self-discipline, and suppression of one's emotions. Platonism was one of the most popular of these philosophies, and it was the most religious, claiming that there was an internal God and that everything in this world was a, in a constant state of changing. The goal of humanity was to rise above the ever-changing world and contemplate the eternal ideas of God, especially that of goodness. 
By contemplating God, the philosopher will become like God, which was the ultimate goal. These philosophies and teachers differed, but all claimed to give an answer and make sense of life, death, and existence. There was power in this. A philosophy that could explain the meaning of life could set the boundaries in which, in which way that life could be lived and therefore had power. And this is exactly what they were competing for. This scribe that Paul mentions here is the, is the one who is an expert in the law. The Jews sought their salvation through means of the law, but upon deeper examination, Paul makes clear in the book of Romans that uh, the law reveals to us that we are sinners, Romans 7, 7. The law brings forth death, Romans 7, 8 through 11. Through the law came an increase of our trespasses, Romans 5, 20. And by the works of the law, no one will be justified, Romans 3, 20. The debater or orator of the age were merely those that were gifted speakers and rhetorics. We kind of already talked about them. They were more performers and showmen than anything else. Though these three positions differed on many levels, they all had this in common. All look to self. And all do not lead to reconciliation to God. And this is true of, of all religions except Christianity. All religions have you working for it. All religions teach that God helps those who help themselves. All religions say you must do in order to get Whereas Christianity says you've already gotten, so do. Christianity says, um, or the religion of the world says, look at what you must do. And Christianity says, look at what has been done. All of religion is man's futile attempts to rise to God. And this is Paul's point here. Where is the scribe who thinks he finds salvation by, by following the law? Where is the debater? Where is the, the showman that you guys so cling to? Where is the philosopher and their philosophies? Where in the end do all of them lead? Condemnation. And this is true for then as it is true for today. Any attempt to become right with God apart from the cross, Paul says, is a foolish attempt that undermines the holiness of God and diminishes the seriousness of our sin. By such attempt, God shows those who are really foolish. Not only through the world's wisdom or religious efforts do they not know God, but God himself worked it out that way. Now why? Why would God work it out that those who are striving to study his law, to become right with him through obedience and, and his law or or studying how to uh, attain to his level, why would God work it out that they would never be able to find him through those means? Pride. If we could attain our own righteousness and reconcile ourselves to God through our own efforts, who then gets the praise? Who then is the one that is glorified? Just the thought and practice of such beliefs are grossly idolatrous. Yet it is very prevalent in the majority of religions and churches today. God eliminates all means of boasting in this text as we will see further. 
This is why in, in verse 21 he states, it pleased God. It pleases God to dash to pieces all of man's self-exalting pride and arrogance through the means of the cross. For no human would ever have come up with the means of the cross in order to be saved. It pleases God to, as our Lord stated in Matthew eleven twenty-five, 25, hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. This revealed power and wisdom of God is revealed through what means? Paul says, not by the act of preaching, but by the content of what is preached. The cross. And, I, and God delights in saving those who by faith put their hope in the message of this cross. This message that the world deems as foolishness. He then goes on to, to call out the, the two main people groups of this time. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. These two people groups make up the majority of Paul's audience during the time of this letter. They also represent the two most self-idolatrous types of people. The Jews of Jesus' time were rebuked on more than one occasion for asking signs, Matthew 12, 38-39, and John 6, 26. But we must ask ourselves, is not a sign there to authenticate and certify the message and who is preaching it? Is it not meant to authenticate the apostles and Jesus? Yes. So why would seeking for them be wrong? The idea here is the motive behind the requests. Many sought the signs and miracles simply to benefit from them personally, benefit from the, the blessings of the miracles instead of the blesser. Demanding signs and wonders place God in subjection to man. And this is therefore idolatrous. I will quote D.A. Carson here because he says it so well. He says, He cannot possibly reduce himself to nothing more than a powerful genie who performs spectacular tricks on command. As long as people are assessing him, they are in the superior position, the position of judge. As long as they are checking out his credentials, they are forgetting that God is the one who will weigh them. Thus, the demand for signs becomes the prototype for every condition human beings raise as a barrier to being open to God. I will devote myself to this God if he heals my child. I will follow this Jesus if I can maintain my independence. I will happily become a Christian if God proves himself to me. In every case, I am assessing him. He is not assessing me. I am not coming to him on his terms. Rather, I am stipulating terms that he must accept if he wants the privilege of my company. End quote. And how many of us have, have met people? I know when speaking to people and trying to witness to people, and I'll, I'll ask, it, the question comes up, and, well, how come you don't go to church? And, and, and when people know, you know that I'm involved in, in church, and, you know, they often say, oh, man, I used, to, I used to go to church all the time. I, used to, I was raised in the church. Uh, I grew up, my, my father was a, was a minister, and, and uh, my grandfather before him, and I was raised in the church, and I did this. Well, what happened? Well, yeah, I just kind of went through a hard time, man, and, you know, so-and-so passed away, and, you know, or so-and-so got sick, or my parents got a divorce, and, you know, I just, I, I just couldn't understand why God would allow that to happen. 
Literally, I know someone who, you know, went to church, started going to church when her marriage was having problems. But the moment her marriage um, dissolved, so did her church attendance. This is very prevalent today. It's called pragmatism, which evaluates the truthfulness of something in terms of its success and practical applications. Uh, what is the bang for your buck? What, is your, what can your Christianity do for me? What does your God have to offer me? And I think some of us and, and many in the church today are, are guilty of evangelizing in this way, unfortunately. Come to Jesus and find your purpose in life. Come and let Jesus take away your worries. Come find happiness in Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, we do have joy. We do have purpose in, in Christ, but, but we must come back to the message of the cross that we are dead and lost. We are without hope unless we cling to the mercies, to the grace and the hope and life that is found at the cross. We have already addressed in the ways in which Greeks sought wisdom and philosophical means and endeavors. They sought to give answers to life's greatest questions. While all the while missing and overlooking man's greatest need. They thought that they could attain the remedy to God by their own wisdom and strivings, all the while dismissing the message of the cross, which is the only remedy to man's situation. Our culture is polluted today with the mindset of self-help and latest scientists, findings of different types of therapies. And unfortunately, a lot of the churches build ministries on these things. Always addressing the result of sin instead of sin itself. And these ministries and this self-help comes, uh, comes to be the, the point in which we point to. We point people to ministries. We point people to man-made remedies and self-help instead of pointing them to the gospel itself. We teach morality. I just recently heard, and I think this happened a while ago, but the, the creator of VeggieTales said that he regretted making VeggieTales. He said that my intentions were good and all, but I was teaching children to act Christian without ever teaching them what a Christian was. I never brought them the gospel. I was teaching morality. And kudos to him for, for saying that. Paul then goes in verse 23 to the antithesis of this. Despite the, the foolishness that the world gives to the cross, despite the, the weakness that is perceived by the world, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul continues to make the distinction between those who believe and those who do not. The Jews thought that the Messiah should come in majesty and conquest, not come die as a sacrificial lamb. 
Not only was the idea of dying, uh, of a dying sacrificial Messiah, a hard pill to swallow for any first century Jew, but the fact that he would die on a cross was borderline blasphemous. For every Jew knew Deuteronomy 21-23, a hanged man is cursed by God. Certainly God would not curse the long-awaited Messiah. Paul knows how much of a stumbling block this was for the Jews, for he himself struggled greatly with it. For he himself thought it utter blasphemous and persecuted the church violently and attempted to destroy it to end this absurd faith. Galatians 1. Paul most likely mentions Gentiles here to make sure that those um, with this unbelieving views are not just Jews and Greeks, but the whole Gentile world. They all have this same unbelieving mindset. The Greeks, Gentile, Romans, likewise saw the cross as foolishness due to their obsession with power. How can your crucified God be good news to me? What a scandalous message this was. This message of this Jesus dying, a shameful slave's death of all things. And this is whom I am to follow and devote my life to? This word folly or foolishness is translated into be understood as madness. The message of the cross was crazy, dangerous, deranged, stupid message in the mind of an unbelieving Gentile. Despite these views, God, uh, Paul is resolved to proclaim this message of folly that offends. What a transition there is today where we have churches removing crosses from church properties and land because it is an offense to others. It is an offense to the outside world. And they proclaim a message that is easy for the ear to hear, a, a gospel light that does not offend. Paul, though, will not capitulate, nor water down this me message, nor be embarrassed. Why? Verse 24, because those who are called, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We can hear echoes of Paul's words in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The question must be asked, as the apostles did, if this message is falling to the outside world, if this message is contrary to man's thinking and way of understanding, who then can be saved? How, how do those who are being saved come to accept this message? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How do these people come? How do we come to this understanding and acceptance of this seemingly foolish weakness message that Paul presents? The answer lay in here in verse 24, this message of Christ, of the cross, is the power and wisdom of God to those who are what? Called. I don't care, to be honest with you. 
I'm not up here proclaiming and pushing a doctrinal belief, and I could care less if you call yourself a Calvinist or Arminian, whatever have you. But I do care that you understand what the Word of God teaches. And there was a, a temptation on me to just kind of brush over this, but I would not be proclaiming the whole counsel of God if I were to do so. <clears throat> these, these verses make clear that it is not by one's ethnicity, philosophical understanding, or religious piety that they come to the saving acceptance of the message of the cross. They believe because they were called. Like the cross, and as we have already discussed, God eliminates all possible boasting from us. How contradictory would it be for Paul to belabor the point that the cross is beyond our wisdom and is contrary to the understanding and reasoning of man, but to be saved, you must try to understand this and attain this wisdom. To believe what our fleshly nature naturally rejects as foolish. This point is shown in even greater detail in verses 26 through 31. And I'm not going to go too far into it, but I do want to read these things to you so that you understand that this is what the Scriptures teach. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Paul is talking about those who believe. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In chapter 2, Paul says that these things God revealed through us, to us through the Spirit. <clears throat> if you're, the, the whole point of the cross that we've been talking about is that it is contrary to man. And it eliminates all of man's pride, all of man's boasting. And so it is a means of, of understanding and coming to the cross that no man may boast. And I'll tell you what, I understand you may have a hard time with this, some of us. But if you can tell me why you are saved and your neighbor is not without giving any creditation to yourself, I will reject this doctrine right here. Because you cannot. You cannot tell me why you're saved and somebody is not without, it's either one or two things, you give credit to yourself or you give all the credit to God. This goes right in line with the message of the cross. Where man falls short, where man is weak and impotent to being reconciled to God, God is strong. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul becomes a, a little facetious here and mocks those who cling to the worldly idea of strength and wisdom for even the so-called foolishness of God is still wiser than that of man's. And the so-called weakness of God is stronger than that of man's. I would like to also quote D.A. Carson, who sums this up very nicely. 
says it better than I can. This is much more radical than saying that God has more wisdom than human beings or that he is stronger than human beings as if we are dealing with mere degrees of wisdom and power. No, we are dealing with polar opposites. Human wisdom and strength are, from God's perspective, rebellious folly and moral weakness. And the moment when God most dramatically discloses his own wisdom and strength, the moment when his own dear son is crucified, although it is laughed out of court by the tawdry wisdom of this rebellious world, by the pathetic strength of self-deceived, it is nevertheless the moment of divine wisdom and divine power. End quote. The cross is not a better way. It is the only way. And this cross gives us today a a snapshot of, of God himself and his character and who we are in light of that. For it is It is at the cross where God lays waste man's arrogance and prideful attempts of attainment and self-righteous works. It is at the cross that God reveals man's great depravity and sinfulness. It is at the cross where God's holiness is revealed, where he shows that he will not turn a blind eye to our sin. It is at the cross where God's justice is Justness is revealed, where his wrath and anger is poured out because of man's sin, but not onto man, but onto a man, the man Christ Jesus. And it is because of him that the cross, God's mercy, grace, and love is shown. How amazing this this cross is. Because of he who died upon it. How amazing is that at the cross, God's greatest act of wrath and greatest act of love is poured out. The greatest act of God's judgment so far and condemnation and the greatest act of of God's forgiveness and redemption is seen at the same place. God's act of, of cursing and blessing is seen at the cross. And there's no wonder that Paul states in the very next chapter, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This message of the cross is the only message that deals with and remedies man's greatest problem, our sin. This message is the only message that can reconcile sinful man with the holy and just God. This message is the only message that offers true and everlasting hope. It is a message that you and I have been charged with proclaiming. In in closing, I would first like to address anyone here who may not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And ask and plead with you that you do not be deceived into thinking that just because you may not necessarily see the cross as foolishness that you are saved. We have already seen through this text that that there is no gray area. 
There is no gray area. The message of the cross is either foolishness to you by your rejection of it, or it is the power of God in your salvation. There is no gray area. There is no other route. The cup of the wrath of the Father shall be yours to drink in full for eternity if you do not humbly come before our Lord and cling to his accomplished work on the cross. Cling to the cross and plead for God's great work of saving power. To us believers, I'm sure God has been speaking to you throughout this message. There's been many applications given throughout the text, but we have heard the message of the cross, a message that is contrary and foolish to this world. But we who belong to Christ are called to carry our own cross. And if we are to follow our Lord, we must carry this cross, Matthew 16, 24, if we are to be called his disciples. And that is a call to die. Die to ourself. Die to our desires, our kingdom building. It is a a message of submission. And just as the cross is contrary to the world, so must our lives that is marked by the cross be contrary to that of the world. We must live. Our ministries, our church, our lives, our family must be founded and rooted in the gospel of the cross. And a final note. The swastika is an ancient symbol that represented good luck or fortune and prosperity before the Nazis inherited it and turned it in turned it into something that it was never meant to be. It is a symbol that will never be returned to its original meaning. Likewise, the cross was a symbol of wrath, despair, and death. But because of Christ's sacrifice, it has become a symbol of love, of hope, and life for those who are in Christ. And how fitting of a symbol this is for us this morning. Those who cling to Christ. How greatly we can relate. Us who were once children of wrath. Ephesians 2.3 But because of the cross, now are children of God. 1 John 3.1 This is the great exchange. I am singing in the eyes of the Father as if I were Christ. Because at the cross, Christ was seen in the eyes of the Father as if he were me. This is the power of our God. Let us pray.
Father, what can we say to you? What act of appreciation we can never we can never thank you enough we will never know Lord what it cost you to redeem us but Lord I think that's what heaven's going to be like us in constant thankfulness for what you did for us. We humbly come before you and we thank you, oh God, for this message of hope that redeems, this power of you, our Lord and God, that is already displayed in those who believe. And I pray, God, for those of us who believe, those of us who are in Christ, may we have the same sentiment that, that Paul had in Romans 1.16. That we not be ashamed of this gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to save. May we carry our crosses and proclaim this message no matter how contrary this world feels, it is. No matter how foolish and seemingly weak this world believes it is. And even in our own lives, if we're experiencing weakness, may we be like Paul that says, when I am weak, I am strong, for there the power of God is displayed. Help us, Lord, to go out. This message is not just to encourage us and make us feel good about what you've done, but to encourage us to proclaim it to a lost and dying world. Embolden us, O oh Lord, to proclaim the message of the cross. And I pray if there, anyone, if there is anyone here that does not know you, that they would cling not to themselves, not to the world's remedies, not to their works, Lord, but cling to the work that was done at the cross, that they cling to you, Lord Jesus, and the accomplished work that was done on the cross. As we sing this last song, may our minds be set on you. May you convict us of sin where conviction need be. Lead us to repentance. Encourage us. Equip us, Lord, for the furthering of the gospel, for the furthering of your kingdom for your glory and the exaltation of your Son. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.